The Achilles heel is that they can do unpopular things many times. They can be found to have violated the Constitution over and over again, but they can pick up the pieces and move, move forward because they'll never lose no matter what they do. Until we get accountability back at the state house level, they'll continue to be at laboratories as long as they know they'll never lose by, by being those things. That's why the system never stops. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Over the last few months, there have been two themes that have been in a lot of the conversations we've had in heavy rotation. The ongoing attack at the heart of the U.S. democracy and the reality of our federalist system of government. We've talked about both on our weekly roundups with David Becker uh, about new voting laws and when we spoke with Lucy Caldwell about ALEC and the State Policy Network. Today, we're going to spend some time on the convergence of these two themes and take a closer look, including what goes on behind the scenes. We'll look at the power of state legislatures and how they're shaping the battle for the future of democracy. My guest today is David Pepper. David served as chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party from 2015 to 2021. He's also a former local elected official in Cincinnati and Hamilton County, Ohio. He graduated from Yale Law School and has taught election and voting rights law at the University of Cincinnati. And most recently, he's the author of a wonderful new book called Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. David, welcome to Politicology. Thank you. Great to be with you guys. Why are they able to continue to learn even when they fall on their face again and again and again? It's because of those gerrymandered districts. They can do unpopular things many times. They can be found to have violated the Constitution over and over again, but they can pick up the pieces and move, move forward because they'll never lose no matter what they do. Until we get accountability back at the state house level, they'll continue to be at laboratories as long as they know they'll never lose by, by being those things. That's why the system never stops. In other words, they have an asymmetrical risk calculation that they're making when they're doing bad things. There, you can you can you can keep doing bad things, trying to get bad things done, uh, without the threat, without the risk of being held accountable for those things, right? So there's really absolutely ne- right? no risk whatsoever. And and just to be clear, being struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court is not a risk for the individual officeholder. It may it may look bad. They don't care because they're not losing their next dis- They're not losing their next race. In fact, they'll brag about, "Hey, I tried." So the way you add risk is that they need to fear that they will lose the election because of what they're doing, or there'll be other consequences. You know, what's happening with Madison Cawthorn right now? That's accountability. Now, I don't know how it's going to go, but if you're going to, you need to add that they fear, this is how politics is supposed to work. I fear I will lose my reelection because I did something crazy or or extreme. (laughs) They do not feel that fear. And And so, you know, the Texas, the Texas taxpayers will pay for the lawsuit. The Texas taxpayers will pay the attorney's fees if they lose. These bozos won't. And until we go back, and one of the things I really don't like about the media coverage of all this is we we literally focus on the lawsuit and the momentary outrage, but we never go back and say, who passed the law in the first place? Mm-hmm. Who's going to challenge that person and hold them accountable at every door they knock on? Because until we're asking that question, what you know who did that who passed it who else voted for it who cost you millions in taxpayer dollars in a losing lawsuit you should lose office because of it um until we do that those people like you said there there is zero risk i go through in the book the the senate bill five in ohio that collective bargaining measure 
disastrous consequences of the polls. Lost almost every county. Overwhelmingly, only one of the you know majority that voted for it lost their next election. Even in their own home districts, where these things lost almost where they lost almost everywhere, almost none of them lost, and only one person lost the office. And two years later, Republican won again. And that showed the Koch brothers and Alec and everybody. My God, you could lose the most disastrous public campaign pot you could ever imagine, like that one, and it still will not cost those who voted for it any worry. So keep going. And they always keep going. They never stop. They never get less extreme. And that in the end, that lack of accountability is the is the heart of the problem that we have to address. I mean, once upon a time, it was true that the votes that you took in whatever legislative body you had been in would be turned around and turned into attack ads that actually mattered. Negative ads that actually worked in campaigns all around the country. I know because I did that. And it used to be that legislative voting records mattered. A huge portion of of time, energy, money uh, in campaign apparatuses apparati, was spent researching uh, the 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 minutia of of votes in committee that any given legislator would take because right. they would matter in an election. Right now, that's not true. No, yeah, it, it, there's as I said, um, the incentives are so different now. Public outcomes. Don't matter. Your your schools falling from fifth to the mid twenties over a decade doesn't matter, even if it's your own schools in your own backyard. I mean, I go through in the book. I mean, there was a group of people in in a little town, and just so it's clear, I, I didn't know all your history. This is impacting red areas and blue areas. Totally, the lack of democracy is crushing public outcomes across the board. Small towns are dying. Schools are getting funds drained out of them. Infrastructure is decrepit in red areas and blue areas, and no one can do anything about it. And I go through this in the book. There was a, there's a town 60 miles along the river from where I'm sitting called Manchester, ghost town. Makes my blood boil. It's 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 been allowed to fall in this mm-hmm. this state, like many many other small towns in places like Ohio. The group of uh, a group of citizens called their senate state senator and said, um, "What what's the plan? What are we going to do to help save our town? We're collapsing." And he literally told them that sometimes you just have to move. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, talk about feeling lack of accountability. Your policies are failing. Trickle down is not helping this town. They're falling apart. And when the when a group of citizens figures out who you are, when most don't know, and figure out how to get a meeting with you, even then, you don't even pretend to be accountable. You you tell them to move, and you say it in a way that the, even a magazine that calls you and asks you about it, you say, "Yeah, I told them that." Now, that's lack of accountability. If you're so bold that you're telling your own citizens to move, it means you know you can never lose. Yeah. And that's kind of what we're stuck with. I also kind of want to bookmark that point because it's a door into a completely different conversation, which is that those people being left behind in rural communities where towns are dying are precisely the people in all across uh, rural America who were who, who, whose anger was weaponized by Donald Trump. And it's not it, the irony should not be lost on anyone that it's that it's Republican legislatures that that ultimately led to the lack of accountability that you're talking about. So, um, yeah, no, it's it, it. And this is why I mean, I try and in the end get through what we can do about it. Um, but, yeah, it's this lack of democracy. I know Democrats look at a gerrymandered map and think we're, we're the victims and we are. I mean, and, and especially voters of color are being. Their communities are being sliced and diced for these people to gain advantage in in state capitals. But to be clear, if explained properly, uh, someone in a small town in Ohio 
you should see, and I try and explain this in some videos I've done, that their town is also falling apart because the people in, in this state house of Columbus have no accountability. That's why they can get away with trickle down economics. It will never help that town, but will help big interests in Columbus. That's why they can get away with taking millions of dollars out of the local school districts and giving them to for-profit online charter school scams that have helped nobody, but have drained all these schools of money. They can do that because even back there, they can't be held accountable for that bad behavior. So there's a direct tie to to the to the you know real collapse of towns in rural America, small town America, to state houses that are serving neither big cities nor them, but serving all these interests that essentially, as I went through in one video recently, we've had a generation which is a massive transfer of public assets, public goods, public resources from the public to the private, mm-hmm. and it's sucking dry big cities and small towns and so many of the public goods that actually do cross party lines for the most part. And and that's why I think the people who are going to be successful in fighting back are going to be the ones that are most effective at sort of creating that broader message beyond just talking about even some of the things we're talking about today. The translating everything I just talked about into, you know, Gretchen Whitmer, fix the damn roads. Yeah. That's what she was getting at. Um the the, the governor, I'm blanking on name right now, but the governor of Kansas, Laura Kelly. Why are we only down to four days a week of school, Kansas? That doesn't make any sense. She was focusing on the public outcome that was disintegrating under this model. Beto O'Rourke's talking about why were people freezing to death in the wintertime in Texas? It's because of the same thing. Public resources being pushed into private hands and the public always suffers. Okay. You write about the 80-20 strategy in your book. Uh, And I want to ask you about that. I'll ask you to lay out what you mean by that. And, uh, and I want to do it in the context of, uh, maybe something that's more immediate on everyone's minds, which is, you know, I'm going to put this in air quotes, the term voter suppression, which has gotten a lot of national media coverage. Uh, and that is laws with provisions that make it harder to vote. Um, and they're bad. And obviously we shouldn't be making it harder for eligible voters, eligible voters to vote. But my problem, uh, that I've talked about a lot on the show is that, the most of the provisions in new state laws, uh, the, the important ones are not getting talked about as much. And that is, you know, what amounts to election rigging after votes are cast. It is, it is criminal to me that the media and in particular, the democratic messaging machine spends so much time talking about the front end of voting where you and I both know that an infinitesimal number of uh, of votes are impacted by uh, of outcomes are impacted by what happens as a result of those votes and what the republicans are doing right now is essentially setting themselves up as Barton Gelman wrote in the Atlantic about Trump's coup currently in progress for 2024 they are setting themselves up to uh essentially steal a presidential election because they know exactly where the pressure points are in uh in the in the election uh, administration machines at the state level. So I want you to talk about that in the 80, 20, uh, frame that you lay out in the book. Sure. Uh, and, and I, I want to say I, some voter suppression laws, you know, the purging here, voter ID, I wouldn't call it infinitesimal. I, I think they, they have had a substantial effect on the ultimate electorate that shows up, but yeah, to be clear, if you're, if you're getting into the infrastructure of counting and certifying votes, no matter what they are, it's even more dramatic and, and more uh, disturbing. Um, and I do think I, I, that's one reason I write in the book. You know, 
we're putting we're trying to put too much of everything that's happening into the world of uh, voter suppression, and I, that's why I say no. This is a this is a deeper attack on democracy itself. Voter suppression is one element, but it's so much broader than that, as you just described. And you saw the you, and the other thing I, I very much resist is the idea that well, this is because of the big lie. This happened. This has been happening since ten, at least. I mean, it's it's happened for centuries. But the recent iteration, everything that's happening in 2021, you can see happening after 2010 and accelerating over that decade. You know, it started with early vote attacks. It uh, started with voter purging. Uh, after Democrats started to do well in 16, you know, Cooper winning in North Carolina, Whitmer and Evers in um, 18, uh, Democrats doing better in Supreme Court races. These legislatures pivoted, like you're suggesting, from simply attacking the voters and purge and, and sorry, in rigging districts to, oh, once someone wins that we don't like, we're going to undo the outcome or we're going to attack their powers so they actually can't accomplish what they promised. That's what they they try to take away attorney general powers, governor powers from Cooper. He spent his whole first term fighting to keep powers that, that the governor prior to him had. So they're essentially trying to undermine the very mandates that come out of elections that they that they lost. So so that's a sign that they don't mind attacking the will of the people by literally attacking the very people that were elected fair and square in those states. They start attacking independent courts. Um, they, they changed the North Carolina rules of, of how you elect courts the minute the Democrats came into power in those courts. They did the same thing in Ohio after 20. We won three three races in two years. Now they changed the way that courts could be elected. And the other thing they've done, beginning in 16, but later, the voters vote for constitutional amendments, like in Ohio and Missouri and Maine. The legislature attacks literally constitutional changes or statutes that were voted directly by the people. They simply ignore them. They won't fund it, or they delay and delay and delay and then run a new one. But to your point, sometimes the only story that gets covered is the fact that there won't be water in lines in Georgia. Now, I think that's a terrible thing they're doing, but there's a lot of other things that that are, I would argue that of everything I just described, in the broader world of democracy, there's no greater alarm bell attack than when a legislature is attacking the rules of how you elect state Supreme Courts. I mean, in terms of separation of powers and checks and balances, and this has happened in North Carolina, it's happened in Ohio, and it didn't even get in the newspaper. Now, the, the Dropbox story did, and it should, because what they're doing in Dropboxes is horrific. But the idea that there was almost not a story on the fact that a legislature threatened by an independent Supreme Court for the first time in a generation quickly changed the rules of how you elect the Supreme Court in Ohio. They added party ID to the ballot. Why? They want the race to be as part, they want the court to be as partisan as they are and uphold everything they do, no matter how illegal. It didn't even get a mention in almost any major newspaper. Why? Because of the 80-20 strategy, which I'll talk about for a second. The 80-20 strategy is basically throw a hundred things forward. Tons of them are crazy, insane. They'll get so many headlines. Some of them will be so controversial, they'll get pulled but they'll get almost all the attention from the budget session or the legislative session. In the meanwhile, 20 or 30 things get through that hardly generated a story. And that happened here in Ohio. They had this, you know, consistent with a lot of other states, they had this egregious attack on rural broadband because private players don't want public rural broadband. That's why it doesn't exist in so many places. That got all the attention. The mayors got upset. The county commissioners got upset. 
at the last minute, the attack on rural broadband was removed from the budget. And so the story in the end of the day is rural broadband saved. Well, guess what? They never mentioned that they changed tax policies that that favored the, the top 1%. They changed the way we elect Supreme Court judges. They changed something around vouchers to keep privatizing education. But rural, you know, again, this this is a combination of the fact that these state houses are over overwhelmed in terms of the state house press corps. There are too many bills to keep track of. And so, yeah, rural broadband did get saved. It got all the attention. That's what all the stories were about. In the meantime, a bunch of other things happened right along the lines of the direction they want that hardly generated a mention. And by the way, and now play that out over 30 or 40 states, every new law that's put into place is no longer some model law. It's an actual state law in Ohio that then Florida can say, well, we're going to do what they did for their court races on our court races. Look what Ohio did it, North Carolina did it. So this is where the laboratories part puts it on steroids. Every one of the 20 that gets through out of that 100 becomes a success story that every other state then adopts. So you do that over a long period of time and you get an explosion of all these laws, many of which never got any attention because people were focusing on the one you know bright, shiny object that didn't actually make it through. That's the strategy. It works to a T. We should spend some time on where we go from here <laughs> because there's a lot of uh, anxiety probably being induced by this conversation right now. Um, and one of the things that, uh, that we hear most frequently um, from our listeners is, okay, tell us more of what to do. Um, so you write about the, uh, the defining lines in the fight for democracy uh, differently that we should move away from the never Trump uh, moniker and uh, and toward always democracy. So I wonder if you can spend a little bit of time on um, explaining the principles you'd be looking for in always democracy candidates. What are the foundational principles they need to support right. to get your vote? Let me first say about what we need to do, and this will be my only shameless yeah. plug. Sure. One thing to do is to read this book. It goes through a lot yes. of details about what everyone, because I agree with you. I, for two-thirds, I'm talking about the real battle and describe it the ways we talked about. But my goal is not to depress people into inaction. It's to, it's to say, your listeners are fired up about democracy. Many people are, but we have to all expend our energy in the right directions You know, at all levels. And my hope is to inspire people to see there's still time left to do this. So if people are interested in the book, you obviously can buy it. If you're interested in getting a taste of it, if you text the word pepper, my last name, P-E-P-P-E-R, to the number 33777. It is not a fundraising trick. You'll get a free introduction to the book so you can get a sense of it, which will then, in the end, if you read the book, it'll walk you through many solutions. But the most important solution to, to your question is to, to understand the reality that one side, and I'll include myself on this side and, and most Americans, we have viewed democracy as intact and stable. And so we have chosen our political battle to be, hey, we battle over elections, because if we win those elections, then we get to put into place a bunch of policies that we think are mainstream, that most people succeed. And if we run our elections on those policies, we'll win those elections. And that has led very uh, to, to an, a very understandable strategy, the most efficient way to, efficient way to accomplish that is to focus on federal elections 
Because if we win the presidency in the House and the Senate, we get to put into place our goals that most people agree with. You know, good for us. That's that's our strategy. And that means we focus on swing states and federal years, especially the, the, the presidential year. The other side could not be viewing this differently. On their side, they understand that their worldview would not succeed in a robust democracy for all the reasons we've talked about. They understand that in order for them to succeed long term, a minority view staying in place permanently, they need a suppressed democracy. They need a place to get things done where they can put things in place that people don't support, but they stay in place. Their attack is against democracy itself. It's not the federal level. It's the state level. It's every year. It's all 50 states. It's on offices that we often focused on the federal level don't think about. Until we overall adjust our mindset to be in the battle they are in, we are going to lose because they're on offense and we're not. So to your question, yeah, we have to reframe the, 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 our battle to be, a to be about democracy itself. That leads to many different ways to think about it. One, it's a long game. It's not a cycle by cycle game. We cannot judge our success or failure based on, did we win that cycle or that cycle for federal elections? They don't think about that way. They, they lost the Obama year. Karl Rove kept plugging away, didn't he? Because he knew the battle was in state level. Uh, uh, Stacey Abrams didn't win in 18, but she didn't quit. She knew she was making progress because she understood that turning getting George to be Democratic was a long battle. And she knew that her work in 18, registering voters, record turnout, was progress towards a blue and Democratic Georgia. So we have to have a longer time frame. But to your point, one other thing we have to do is get out of just thinking about this as a Trump thing. This started before Trump, as I said earlier, long before Trump. Um, tr the, the attacks on democracy preceded him. They certainly benefited him. Uh, but And they'll continue long after he's gone. And if you think they won't drop him like a bad habit, if he's costing them, uh, you're, you're fooling yourselves. Someone else could clearly benefit from all this anti-democratic infrastructure they're building on their side far better than Trump, who always steps in it. Uh, so this will this will live long after Trump. So we can't define everything, although it helped for 20, as for Trump or never Trump. It has to be about always democracy. Uh, it'd be like saying that the fight against Jim Crow was never Andrew Johnson. I mean, that, that would be an absurd thing to say, but that's kind of what we're doing. And so my point would be to say, if someone, just because someone doesn't feel like Trump, doesn't endorse Trump, doesn't act like Trump, they can be doing as much damage to democracy or more than Trump did because they're in charge in the state house or they're a secretary of state or they're like Rob Portman giving cover to anti-democracy things. You know, senators like Rob Portman spent a couple weeks ago talking about how federal voting rights legislation was a federal takeover. Now, he doesn't sound like Trump, but a federal takeover was literally the best play from the segregationist playbook in the 1960s when they realized they couldn't just say racist things anymore. It's literally propaganda. The Constitution says the federal government should be actively involved in elections in multiple places. So Rob Portman, if, if you use your never Trump glasses, you're like, oh, Rob Portman, he's not like Trump. He's better. If he is putting, you know, if he is saying that voting rights protections are a federal takeover, He's as much against democracy as Trump is, and we need to make clear about we need to be clear about that. Frank LaRose, the Ohio Secretary of State, doesn't sound like Trump, but he sure is attacking democracy every day. So we have to think about the two sides as are you for democracy or aren't you? That those are the two teams. By the way, that can lead to good alliances with people we don't agree with on everything else. It can also mean that we need to stop fighting amongst ourselves on the on the pro-democracy side over other issues 
because if we don't have democracy, none of us are going to succeed. So once you see it as a battle for democracy, it's a long game. The teams look a lot different than just sort of a short, a short term Trump lens. And you start thinking about fighting for democracy in all 50 states, at all levels, not just federal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, that's a really important part of the, of the shift we have to make. So I, I completely take your point about the, the never Trump moniker. And I, 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 I think the reason that it stuck, at least for me, one of the reasons that I sort of, it worked was because if you think about Trump just having been a person who embodied everything that is wrong right? Every, uh, embodied everything that is undemocratic, right? He, he sort of became a symbol for those things. He, almost like a, if, you, if you consider sort of there are figures who may become North Stars in the way you want to orient your life, Trump was a South Star for everybody, for everybody who I, right? Um, and one of the full, few full lines in the book that was italicized is uh, the defense for democracy must take place in all 50 states on a permanent basis, end quote. Um, and I want to talk a minute about how we shift from a focus, especially in the media, that is entirely on a handful of states, as you just described, that can determine the outcome of a presidential election, uh, to defending democracy across the board. And I kind of, I, I agree with you. I think we're moving that direction where democracy, quote unquote, in air quotes, is, uh, you know, everybody's fired up about it, which like 10 years ago was not the case at all. And you make the point that competitive autocracies, like Russia and Hungary, uh, and increasingly here, rely on the public impression that everything is fine. Which reminded me of that internet meme where the you know the dog is sitting at a table with a cup of coffee as the house burns down around him, and he says, "This is fine." But Americans aren't saying everything is fine. There was this December CBS News YouGov poll that had two thirds of Americans say democracy is threatened. Less than a quarter of Republicans believe Biden legitimately won enough votes to win the presidency. Democrats are watching these anti-democracy laws get passed in state houses all across the country. And in my mind, there's a twin set of problems here uh, that are sort of orbiting each other like giant black holes. And the first one is that the word democracy is now vague shorthand for you know the principles of the social contract that we have taken for granted for too long. So long. Uh, in fact, that most people couldn't tell you what they are. And, and because it lacks universal definition, it's sort of useless. The, the second problem I see is obviously our truth problem. And that is simply that the very idea of truth has been uh, assaulted, eroded by terms like alternative facts and drained of nearly all common meaning in our information environment. So when you put those two things together, we're talking about making democracy the focus, what is our path forward when we don't have a common understanding of truth around right. elections and democracy? That's a great question. Um, and just so on the never Trump, I don't, I don't quibble with it as a way to have beaten Trump. I just worry that like we're seeing so much of our overall political debate in a Agree. Trump lens. Agree. We think the big lie is the reason they started suppressing votes. And I do think it's given cover. It's given cover to people who are attacking democracy. And I think it's one reason you saw state houses stay Republican, even in states where Trump didn't do as well, because people thought, okay, I'm against Trump, but those other people are fine, when in fact, they're all attacking democracy too. So I think it's a shift we have to make. To your question, though, I, I mean, th this is going to sound kind of strange, but I wouldn't say almost anything I'm talking about in a 30-second ad. I wouldn't make my next campaign about democracy, although let's rally the democracy people. But- as I said earlier, I would translate for the average voter 
how this affects them and their lives in as less in as unpartisan way as possible. Fix the damn roads, Michigan. Don't let people freeze, Texas. Um, don't have four days a week Kansas, of school, Kansas. Uh, we have whether it's corruption or lack of democracy. As you said, if all we're doing is screaming about democracy and, and corruption, voters, that's a Rorschach test. You know, one voters will see one thing, one will see the other. We have to say to voters all across the state, and the, and the good thing is these are not messages that have to be micro-targeted because collapsing infrastructure is pretty much bad everywhere and upsets people everywhere. Four days of school doesn't make sense to anybody. Um, scams where money is going to online charter schools that are disasters and basically been scams in Ohio that, that has drained public schools of money are not something that people like. And so I would say to the people who are messaging in the end in campaigns, take the outcome of the corrupt and undemocratic state house that is most troubling to a broad group of people. And that outcome will be there. It is, it is a inevitable consequence of these. Again, I mentioned earlier, the driving MO of these state houses, public resources going to private players. That will inevitably lead to a dramatic decline in the public outcome, like what we've seen in Ohio. But it's all over the country. People around me, all I get emails every day. You just described Tennessee. You just described towns in, in Iowa. It's, it's all happening. So the challenge for those who are out to win elections at all levels is take the public outcome that is a natural consequence of the corrupt undemocratic state house. That's what you focus on. Laura Kelly in Kansas, Chris Kobach, we all know. There are many things you could have said about that guy. Uh, you know, on his voter suppression, her campaign was, I don't even know if she mentioned it much. Why do we have four days of school in, in Kansas? Uh, I, I, she, her ad is, I, I watched it for my book. I grew up in Kansas. Our values were all about our education. What is wrong in Kansas that we have four days of school a week? So she's focused on not the allegation of corruption and trickle down economics that people will get lost on. She's focused on an outcome that most Kansas would look at and say, yeah, that's ridiculous. Or again, why is our infrastructure falling? If I were in Ohio running statewide, I'd be focused on small towns like the one I described that are falling apart and schools that are collapsing. And maybe the fact that we've led the country in opioid addiction for a decade. I mean, the public outcomes here are indefensible. And that's what I'd message on. And sure, the folks who care about democracy will be on board. But that's how you get beyond the partisan stuff. And that's how hopefully you get beyond the allegations of truth or not truth, because people can see if their own town's falling apart. And they can see if they all of a sudden are paying 500 bucks for their kid to play sports because the school doesn't have any money left. I mean, so that's the kind of pivot I would make if I were actually messaging on elections themselves. That's so good. Really good answer. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an impossible question, but. Okay. What are things, other things you mentioned the text number, um, which, which I'll have you read again. Um, what are things individuals can do to push back against uh, rising autocracy? I think there's this, you know, perception that we only need to focus on states that are Republican controlled or states with trifectas. Um, what are the things people should look for in states with divided governments? And what are ways individuals can make sure elected officials stay accountable to the electorate, even if the party you belong to controls all of state government? So the first the thing I, I, I go through 30 steps in the book, okay? A couple of those steps are the need to for the federal government to act. And I don't want to brush over those because there is a pretty disturbing history that when there is a relentless attack on democracy at the state level, federal legislative action is needed. And so the one thing I'd say is 
Don't let anyone off the hook. They had a vote a couple weeks ago. They did not get what they wanted. They shouldn't just quit and move on. Like we, we can't. You, if you look at what happened that led to Jim Crow, when the federal government stopped resisting state attacks on democracy, it's what led to Jim Crow. So one is, I don't care if it's a blue state Democrat or a red Republic, red state Republican, keep, tell, keep, keep telling your federal leaders that it's not good enough to just have one vote and move on. This, is too, this moment is too fraught with risk long-term, such that my five and seven-year-olds will, will live the consequences for their lives. And I, so one, the Senate has to act. The federal government has to act. And I don't quit on that ever. But those are just two steps out of the 30. We also can't wait for them to get their act together and to figure this out and to read the Constitution and read the Guarantee Clause that they should, there should be a democracy in all 50 states. Um, we do need to reframe the national politics, but we can't wait for them to do that. But there, we can all do so many things. And I go through the specifics. Uh, the way I would frame it generally is all of us have a footprint in this world. Okay? We all have a footprint that may be bigger than we even think about. And we have to stop waiting for Stacey Abrams to save us, although she's saving a lot of us and doing great things. We can't only celebrate when Michelle Obama announces a massive voter registration drive, although that's great news. If we want to scale up our battle for democracy, we have to put we – we can't have one-off efforts. Just like we people registered the BMV, which is great, but sort of random when you think about it. Why is that so – why does that work so well? Because it's putting into the bloodstream of daily activity something that lifts democracy. So the rest of us, in our bloodstream of our daily life, how can we lift democracy? And I'll just give examples. And make this your, you know, it's February, but you still have time to make a New Year's resolution. Make this part of your New Year's resolution. Add lifting democracy to your personal mission statement and incorporate to your footprint in life every day. Here's an example. Are you on the board of a homeless shelter? Is the homeless shelter registering voters? Is it giving out uh, uh, information on how to vote early or how to vote election day, how they vote in particular when they're homeless? Are you on the board of a food bank? Are you registering everyone who shows up? Are you involved in public transportation? Do you have registration of materials there or early vote? Or are you lifting democracy with those footprints? Um, are you the mayor of a city or do you know the mayor of a city? Are they using every part of that city's public facing footprint? the rec centers, the health clinics, the libraries, to inform voters who are being purged every day. Every, every group I just mentioned, the constituents of those groups are the ones being purged by our Secretary of State in Ohio or in Georgia. So are you fighting back for those who you serve? Do you run a restaurant? Do you eat at restaurants? If there's a restaurant registering voters, do you tell people, eat at the restaurant I go to? Because by the way, they don't only serve good barbecue, they lift voters. Like we have to start to think about everything we do and add lifting democracy to that, to everything we do. That's how you scale it up to a level that's not just waiting for the, the, you know, the Tim Ryan campaign to register voters. We've learned a campaign registering voters, it's too late in the game. And now that'll help, just like a party registering voters will help. But the cycle by cycle explosion is often too late to make a difference. We saw that in Ohio. Clinton tried to re-register all the purge voters. Didn't come close. And in the meantime, never talked to swing voters or already registered voters to do what they need to do because they were so focused on the purge voters. We have to incorporate the lifting of democracy into everything we do. And just an example of be, 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 sorry, just an example besides registering voters. 
if you're incorporating democracy into everything you do, it means you're subscribing to the local or state paper that covers the state house. Don't just share the great sports columns about the Cincinnati Bengals. Share the columns about the state house because they watch that stuff, and that's the new economy of journalism. Um, don't let anyone run unchallenged. If you're in a district, the greatest gift we give after the gerrymandering itself, which we need to fight back on, is when we let 30 out of 99 people go unchallenged. It leads to the culture of total lack of accountability. It means there are 30 districts in a state where the voters never once hear the Democratic message from someone locally who actually they'll listen to. So part of your mission, if you're in a district, if there's no opponent, run yourself or get your most impressive friend or the one who knows the most people, get them to run. And when they run, help them all the way through. Um, you know, if you're part of an advocacy group, Add of of any sort, add the state house to your footprint because that's the place that too few people focus on. I was on a call. I was on a call earlier today with some great people. They want to gather petitions or protest Jim Jordan. That's great, but the the state the state senator and state house member from Jordan's district they're the ones doing the gerrymandering right now in Columbus. Make sure you focus on them too. So I go through all these specifics, but but my my point is. We have to reframe them from the top, and I hope some really important people read my book and do that, and I'm trying to have those conversations. But every single person listening to this has a footprint that is powerful and impactful, and there's a lot they and we can all do every single day to, to fight back. And here's the point. If we don't scale it like that, we won't succeed because the other side, it's not, this is not a side project for them to attack democracy. It's the heart of how they accomplish what they want to accomplish. So we have to feel it just as much that it's if we want to accomplish the America we want to accomplish, we got to incorporate everything we do too, just like they do. David Pepper, before I let you go, the book is called Laboratories of Autocracy. And you can get David's 30 point plan at the end of the book if you. Buy it right now right. on Amazon. Is that the best place to? You can get it on Amazon, get it from a local bookstore, or order it, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, online, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And like I said, uh, one last plug. Yeah, where can people you find you on the it, internet? So one of the important things, this book is not some academic or legal treatise. It is It is about storytelling. It tries, think about it as sort of what's the matter with Kansas, but in Ohio about democracy. But I get to a lot of other states too. But it, I try and make it accessible by telling stories about how bad it is through real lives and not just. So this is not going to be. And this is why if you get the introduction, you'll see that by texting Pepper to three, three, seven, seven, seven. I think you'll find it very readable. Someone called me, a, a reporter from Time. I think it was said, congratulations, you actually wrote about a book about state houses. that was really interesting. <laughs> and it's just like, I'm, exactly. I'm getting into, I, I write novels on the side. I mean, that's kind of what I do. Uh, so I've incorporated a lot of storytelling into it. You know, these are true stories, but they get into that town in Manchester where the poor citizens demanded something. They get into the rural broadband and its impact on Ohio. They get into some, you know, my own experiences as a candidate where no one knew what the heck the state auditor did about gerrymandering or what gerrymandering was. So I try and tell it in a way that's very readable. And if you if you get that introduction, I think you'll see that. So don't let the the, the serious topic scare you. I think it's a pretty easy read and in some points entertaining. So I try and I try and make it something that everyone can can get something out of, even if they're they don't want to sit down with a super serious nonfiction book too. Completely agree. Um, are you on Twitter? You're on Twitter. You're getting a lot yeah, of traction I'm on, on Twitter. Twitter. At David Pepper 
And I, I actually, uh, I didn't mean to do this, but I started posting short whiteboards explaining everything we're talking about. Yeah. And if you want to see those at David Pepper, or you can go to YouTube at David Pepper for Ohio, that's number four. Those have gotten pretty popular. Every couple of days, I'll do a two-minute whiteboard explaining some aspect of something we've talked about or something in the news. Those have, those have seemed to uh, translate well to people. So I can now say that uh, Hillary Clinton and I have at least one thing in common, which is that you've been on both of our podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was uh, honored to be on her podcast. And, you know, it's funny. She, she and I talked about two months ago, long before the podcast, or I even knew it beyond it. And she was, she's just, you know, incredibly fired up about understand. She knows what's happening at the state level. She lived, she saw it in Arkansas. She's figured it out and she's been saying it for years. So I think um, this is something where she's excited to see folks like yourself and me and others bringing light to it. Cause again, it has survived and thrived mm-hmm. and intentionally. So Oh yes, they went to state houses and they say Jane Mayer's book, dark money explains this. They went to state houses because that's where no one was paying attention to try and do what they're doing in Washington would be much harder. It would be much more expensive because they can show up to state houses where there are no reporters or very few reporters and eight year term limited state reps who are eager to get something done and they can, in a gerrymander to the hilt and they can get all the stuff done. And so your attention to it, I'm proud to have written a book about it. We have to, and as my book says, it's called a laboratories of photography, a wake up call from behind the lines. If you're in a blue state and feeling good about things, you need to hear what's happening in states like this and help us stop because it really it's not only a threat to the good to the public good of Ohio as James Madison would tell you it's also a threat to the entire country if we let it keep going. I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Um, I feel like we have hours and hours ahead that we could talk about but I'd love to have you back. Um, and David Pepper, thanks so much for making the time. Thanks, really enjoyed it. Honored to be on your show. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.